Hi, I'm Kevin, and welcome to my podcast, Finding My Freedom, where we talk about our passion in life and how we go about pursuing these things that we love. Whether you're a musician, artist, mechanic, tradesman, whatever it is that you love to do, whatever it is that gets you up and gets you motivated in the morning, I love to talk about and and uh, explore how we can live a more balanced life for the things we have to do and the things we love to do. Now, my next guest and I go way back, back to 1996 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We went to a school called Music Tech. It's now called McNally School of Music, but I believe it's closed at this point. And there was a brotherhood between all the guitar players in the school, to be honest with you. Like, everybody came from their own place, you know? Like, you had the shredders, you had the jazz guys, you had the guys that just wanted to rock, you know? And so, but we all just had this sort of bond, this connection. And he was a shredder, uh... What I would consider a shredder, I don't think he would consider himself one, but I would definitely do it. And progressive rock and all that stuff. And the great thing about it, though, is like, even though I was like a blues guy that was interested in jazz and wanted to learn the theory and stuff, um, you know, mainly for teaching and dabble in jazz, but it wasn't really my love. My love was the blues stuff, you know. But we all ended up being really good friends and like our little circles we would have these weird little parties and you know drink a bunch of beer and talk about music play play a little bit of jamming and just you know just uh explore our passion and it was the first time in my life that I actually was around like-minded people that much to where you know they understood me like I could talk to them in a certain way that uh I didn't get looked at like I had three heads. (laughs) So we went to school together, and then um, obviously we went our separate ways. But when, you know, Facebook came out and all that stuff, we started connecting again. You know, the guys in the school, we were finding each other and sort of just, you know, keeping track, keeping tabs, seeing how people were doing. But we didn't physically talk again until 2019. When I was um, going through Nashville to check out uh, schools for building guitars, I gave him a call. And, uh, through Facebook, I knew he was living there. I gave him a call said, hey, man, you want to have a cup of coffee or something, you know? And he was like, sure. So, But there's more to that story later on in the podcast. So anyway, he's a killer guitar player, and um, he's got a pretty decent online presence at this point uh he's had done some very interesting things over the years and we're going to talk all about all that stuff and kind of catch up and so i would like to introduce to you my friend mr david lowry hey dave how you doing man it's great to see you talk to you again you too thanks everything is good on my end how about yourself Oh, it's been pretty good. Just been, you know, just working at uh, the old podcast and doing some guitar stuff online. And, uh, you know, how about you? 
Um, pretty much mostly guitar stuff, I guess. Um, I do a little bit of production work part-time out there in, in the Nashville area. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know how many different bands now. Um, like seven. I know, I know it's a lot. I see you on your <laughs> online thing. It's great though, you know, especially especially at our like at our age right now. You know, to come into come into your own like that's a, it's an amazing thing. You know, I just I'm just I'm excited for you, man. Thanks. <laughs> it's 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 weird being busier now, right? I mean, I quit playing for what ten years. I sold all my gear. Um, I was so sick of the business and and dealing with. Um, people who didn't want to prepare for rehearsal and and whatever and I just quit and then you know a couple of years back I picked up a guitar playing again because I had a friend that had a project he wanted me to play guitar on and so I did it and then before you know it you know boom I'm inundated with all kinds of stuff and I mean it's great it's nice to be kind of in demand and um you know I'm, I'm learning tons of new music every day, all day. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty blessed right now. I'm pretty happy. Yeah, it's great, man. I got to tell him the story about uh, when I came to Nashville and, and after we reconnected. And I don't even think I told you about how it affected me. <laughs> okay. So me and Dave go way back to uh, 1996. And, well, we hadn't talked in, what, 25 years or something like that, maybe? Probably, yeah. Yeah, something like that anyway. Well, Nashville had a Lutheran school down there, and I was going down there to check things out. So, and well, I knew Dave was there, so I decided to give him a call, and we connected. And he was like, you know, don't get a hotel room. You can come stay with me. Don't worry about anything. Just let me know when you get into town. And I thought, oh, well, that's cool, man. All right. So as I was getting closer to Nashville, I messaged him and said, you know, hey, I'll be there about this time. And he said, all right, well, I'll be in the studio still, but uh, feel free to come to the studio when you get into town here. I'll send you the address and all that. And I thought, oh, cool. I'll, that ought to be fun to do. Now, mind you, I thought it was just a little studio that you built, you know, like maybe in your garage or a spare room, you know, just like a little hobby studio or something that you had. Little did I know that I was about to meet the drummer from Tesla. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so. Well, I mean, that's his studio to be to be honest, right? I was just helping him build it out and whatever. So. Right, but you know, like, in the message, I thought it was just going to be some small little, you know, little home studio thing. I had. <laughs> so I get over there and I've been driving all day, and you know, I probably needed to shower and pretty pretty grimy from the trip and everything but so I get there and Dave introduces me to Troy and I'm like holy shit that's a drummer from Tesla thinking in my head but just playing it cool mm -hmm. you know I just couldn't figure out what was going on because you know like you I too quit for about 10 years and two months before us meeting I decided I was going to get back into playing music again and get back to that life and I didn't care how or why. I just knew I needed to get back to playing. I didn't care if I ever played a gig again or whatever. Just needed to get back to playing. And so now all of a sudden, two months later, I'm sitting here eating Chinese food with Troy, the drummer from Tesla, and you, you know? Right. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, how does this happen? But, like, you know, it was a great time. I just enjoyed it, and I took it as a synchronicity that I was on the right track. 
And he was super cool, man. You couldn't meet a nicer guy. He showed me his studio, showing me around. And I mean, we had Chinese and uh, got to shoot the shit a little bit. It was great, man. No, Troy's about as real as it gets. He, there's no pretense with him. Um, you know, just generous to a fault. And, um, you know, wants, wants everybody to be happy and be successful and, and all that. So, you know, it, it was kind of kind of similar for me in the sense that like I ran into Troy in an airport um, I was flying to Vegas for a convention he was flying to California for a um, tribute to Keith Emerson that he was playing in and uh, we kept in touch by text for a bit and then I ran into him at a winery dog show in Nashville and he had a speaking engagement the next day and says hey don't you do video and I said yeah he goes well, you know, I'm speaking tomorrow. Come on out and, uh, you know, see what happens. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll even bring my gear and I'll film this one free so you have something to, to put on your website. And so that's what we did. And then for, you know, a good two, three years after that, I was over there all the time helping him, you know, trying to get gear moved around and, and build out the studio and do video work and all kinds of stuff. And um, turned into a great friendship and I was really blessed by it. And it was because of him that I got back to guitar playing. He didn't even know I played guitar for probably the first year and a half or so that we hung out. Um, right. I remember you telling me that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, w I had no intentions whatsoever of picking up a guitar again at that point. So, but it, you know, it just kind of worked out the way it was. He, you know, he, um, I don't remember who it was. There was somebody over at the studio one day and they, they were looking at some of my videos that I had put up on YouTube or whatever way back in the past and said, Oh my God, this guy can really play. And so they started showing Troy, and that's how Troy figured out I could play. And then he's the one who asked me if I wanted to do this one-off gig with a, a friend of his that he had produced. Oh, and, nice. Uh, yeah, and from there, it just kind of took off. And, you know, I mean, after not playing for 10 years, you got to build back your chops for sure, right? So yeah. that, that was the process of, you know, getting back in there and doing that. But fortunately, it just happened to kind of coincide with the start of COVID. And, so I had nothing but time on my hands. Nice. Yeah. So. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, when I first started coming back into it, I didn't touch a guitar for five years and I quit playing for 10. And right. when I restarted learning my exercises and when I, I started rebuilding the scales and I started practicing on a regular basis, at first it was hard for it to come back through, but after a few days of going through the exercises it was like this cloud lifted from my brain and i could see it again it's a really odd experience it was really wild because like i could right. tell it was still there but it was like dormant it was like dormant in my brain you know like i had to pull it back out again so it literally took some time for it to clear and sort of you know move itself forward again but when it did it was like like I said, it, it was like a fog had lifted and set, and then like all of a sudden, boom, I could see it again, and it was really crazy. Right. It, it, for me, it was more just having the time to process what I was working on versus like back when we were in music school, there's so much thrown at you, and you're yeah. learning, but it was really kind of hard to let it all sink in, right? When I was doing it this time, it was... Um, a little easier to process everything that I was taking in and relearning or, you know, uh, uh, for whatever reason, certain things that I struggled with before just started to make sense a lot quicker. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah it, it was, it I think having that, that 
time with no pressure on you, you know, to have certain things done and then be in a rush to go learn all these t tunes and blah, you know, I think that just made all the difference in the world. Because here I was just doing it for fun, just to get back into it and enjoy it. And um, there was no demand on my time for all these other projects like there had always been in the past. So it just kind of seemed like it blossomed faster to me. And, um, you know, I, I play a lot now, um, but I'm probably still not as technical as I was back in, you know, 97, 98, that era. Uh, but I think I'm probably 300 times better as a player than I than I was then because I I understand it better now I feel it better now I figure things out quicker now, so it just took you know I don't know I started playing when I was 12 and I'm 52 now it just took you know that many years for it to really kind of sink in I guess yeah I think as youngsters we tend to focus on the technical side of things more, but speaking of when you started playing. Uh, do you want to just kind of start with that and uh, let everybody know um, what got you started playing guitar and, and uh, how the bug bit you and we'll go from there. Inspired. I had an older brother that played guitar and he had all the hot girlfriends. So I think that's what inspired me to start. Um, what about the hair? Uh, Does that inspire you to start your hair too? <laughs> uh, yeah, but that wasn't that wasn't until I was in my 20s and out of the military. I never had long hair before oh, that. Oh, nice. <laughs> um no, you know, I had an older brother, and he he was big into things like Priest and Maiden and and uh, the like, you know, anything kind of rock and roll back in the day. And so, you know, I had that influence. And um, there was a couple guys in high school I remember that were, you know, pretty good players. And um, you know, I'd see them, and they do the little battle of bands and and whatever. And so that kind of inspired me a little bit too, at first. Um, but I grew up. Uh, in Anchorage, Alaska, and there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities up there at the time. And so I, uh, my mom was the first female bartender in Alaska, and she had a pretty good you know, reputation up there, had a little following and all that. And so I grew up learning to play country tunes in these country bars up there. Oh, I was nice. that kid with the... Yeah, it was that kid with the lime green Charvel Warlock. I'm mean, not Charvel, but BC Rich Warlock up on right. the stage, you know, at 14 years old playing country tunes. Um... And it was just kind of the only opportunities I really had. So um, I took, you know, that beginning guitar course uh, in junior high, you know, with the Mel Bay method or whatever it was. Or, right. Um, and that was really the only training I had. And then um, as I got older, my priorities changed. And so guitar uh, fell back a little bit. Um, I moved to Yakima when I was 15, Yakima, Washington, and there was a kid there named Chris Bales. He goes by Todd now. And he was a little prodigy, a little savant. He was, uh, one of the, he grew up playing classical music and, and, you know, been playing guitar for six months and could already play Yngwie Malmsteen. And um, so he was my next infusion of, of getting back into playing a little bit, but I was also a huge into tennis and so that was really my focus it wasn't until uh many years later i you know i went through my process of of tennis got recruited to go in the navy to play tennis ended up switching sports going into taekwondo at the olympic training center for six years and then i retired in 95 and didn't know what i wanted to do with my life i mean because my whole focus had been this you know the sports career and um, so I thought, you know what? I'm gonna go figure out how to play guitar. Because I had been doing it off and on through that time. 
I'd play with a couple local bands, you know, everything I knew back then was learned by tab, whatever, we didn't have YouTube or none of that. And I didn't really have good ears, so it was all done by tab. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can't get into music school. So I did, that's when I, you know, I, went, I, I enrolled at Music Tech at, nor at first to be an audio engineer, because I didn't think I'd be good enough as a guitar player. And then I went in to take the tour and saw that some of the other guitar players weren't all that great either. So I switched uh, my my um, course to guitar performance, and and it just kind of took off from there. And even then, I felt like I always felt like the the you know the redheaded stepkid in that school. Like I I didn't I wasn't as good as everybody else. I understood the theory, and you know I felt like I could sight read you know, pretty well compared to some, but I didn't feel like my um, phrasing was anywhere near as good as anybody else's. So, um, you know, that, that I felt like maybe held me back a little bit and I got too uh, into the practicing exercises versus learning how to play over changes. So, right. um, you know, I did a, what did I do after that? Ended up working with Prince and doing some guitar teching for Mint Condition and Tony Braxton. Uh, I nice. was playing a little bit, but I wasn't really, you know, out there pushing it. Um, and then, you know, I went off and did a couple of the businesses, and I was doing. A, oh, that's what I, that's what it was. After we graduated, I went off and I did a, a, a kind of a funk rock band. Oh, really? Yeah, I was in a funk rock band, and um, the guy that was the singer of that had won a Grammy Award for something or other. And uh, I replaced a friend of mine on, on guitar, and um, that's when I learned that shredding three note per string scales probably wasn't going to work in every situation. Right. right so right. I had, I had to, you know, I had to learn how to, to to skank it up a bit to be able to play the funk and all that kind of stuff, and. So I, I started studying uh, funk players a lot and listening to Prince a lot and things like that to kind of try to fit more into that mold. But that's what got me the um, uh, some of the stuff like with um, guitar teching and, and whatever and going out on the road and doing that for a while. Um, nice. What else did I do? I can't even remember anymore. You know, I just it was mostly just, you know, uh, local stuff until I moved to Nashville in 2004. Um, you know, I I got married in 2001, moved up to Duluth, Minnesota, from Minneapolis after school. Oh, you and lived there. Wasn't... You lived there for a while. For three years, and then we moved down here. And I moved down here, and I was like, oh God, you know, they're not going to need a guitar player down in Nashville. Jesus Christ, there's a million of them, and they're all better than me. So you know, what whatever. And I had told my wife at the time, don't tell anybody I play guitar. I'm going to focus on my, you know, I had a financial planning practice and I needed to focus on getting that up and running down here because I didn't know anybody down here. And um, we ended up going to church uh, where Michael W. Smith was the, one of the pastors. And um, oh, cool. she, of course, she went around telling everybody that I play guitar. And <laughs> right. so I, you know, I ended up playing on the worship team a little bit. I actually ended up being his main worship guitar player for about a year um, when the other guy moved away. And then um, there was a guy there uh, that had a, uh, a, a vision for doing some outreach. And so he put together this Euro pop rock band where he wrote all the music and hired a bunch of session musicians down here to play it and put out a CD. And um, I had the look. 
uh, and all that. And so um, he asked me to audition, and I learned the CD in uh, just a couple days and came in and played it and, and nailed it note for note. And they were so impressed, they hired me on the spot, and we ended up going touring around the world um, for about three years. I did that with them. Where all did you guys um, go? Uh, India a couple times, China, Romania nice. a couple times, uh, South America, not South America, South Africa, sorry. Um, you know, stuff, a lot of European countries, things like that. Um, and that was uh, that was all right. I mean, that was a that was a great experience because you're getting to see the world. You're getting paid for it, um, and you're being tested on your professionalism because you'd show up places and you know they'd have really subpar equipment or you'd be out in the middle of a uh, gun range in the middle of India 10 miles up in the mountains and there's no you know roof and it was windy and raining and uh, it was causing your amp to short out you know things like that or <laughs> one time we were in China and we showed up and the drum set was one of those little practice kits that you would get out of a Sears <laughs> and Robot catalog right. that was the drum kit they supplied and my drummer was pissed but man did he rock it he killed it he did such a great job um, and you know, it was it was just things like that, and you know, you still have to perform, so you still have to to make it happen. So, uh, you know, you're sleeping in hotels that have open windows. There's no glass in them. You're eating food, not knowing if you're going to get sick or not because of where you're at. Um, you know, it was just kind of constantly, you know, testing yourself. And but we also got treated amazingly by the the people and the, sometimes the the dignitaries and politicians that were there. Um, so that was fun. That, that was really, besides some of the stuff I did with the Olympic Training Center and the military, some of the most amazing things that ever happened to me because you just saw so much and you got to see how people really lived in other parts of the world. And, um, you know, really eye-opening, you know. So, um, yeah, that was a great time. And then I think I quit that in 2008, opened up my management practice, Started managing a bunch of national acts like Brother Kane, Damon Johnson, Sass Jordan out of Canada. Um, Did that for a while um, until I got tired of people not paying me. Right. And um, just kind of slid back into um, um, doing things I'd done before just to kind of, you know, get away from the music business. That's when I quit playing guitar. And... um, kind of walked away from all that and you know slowly came back around to it through Troy and uh, now you know I, I make my living play guitar and um, I play probably eight hours a day on average and nice yeah you know it's um, I'm, I'm I have a lot to catch up on because obviously I didn't keep up with the technology um, I, I'm not a gear whore by any means I have um, a helix that I run uh, for everything, and um, you like your still, Charvels. I like my Charvels, yes. Um, <laughs> that's mainly just because they fit my hands. I have small hands for you know for a guitar player, so those necks are perfect for me. Um, and um, they're really great guitars. And if you think about, yeah. you know, the stuff that we had to start on, the stuff that we had to play on. These new guitars are absolutely incredible compared to how good they are as to how much they cost. Yeah, no, I mean, 
you know, your $1,000 level Charvel was, is, was top of the line, you know, premier stuff back then. So, um, I love them. I have five of them now. Um, nice. I just, I have a Fender Tele, a Richie Kotzen Fender Tele, which is probably, uh, the best sounding guitar I have. It's got a big fat baseball neck, but it actually plays incredibly easy. Um, it's just my hand gets a little more tired playing that one for a couple hours. And then I just picked up my first PRS uh, on Friday. Oh, cool. What'd uh, you get? It's just a, a was it a uh, SC standard? Um, yeah, the, the student the student version, right? The SCs are the student uh, versions, aren't they? Or is that what that means? See, I don't even know. Yeah, yeah I think so. I don't so. even know. But the, the guy came in and, and sold it to me at this uh, gig I played, and... Um, uh, he's like, are you looking for a guitar? And I'm like, not really. Um, I already have a bunch. But um, I think he just needed to get rid of it. He must have really needed the money because he gave me an amazing deal on it. And I plugged it in and played it, and it shredded just as well as my Charvels did. It takes right. a bit to get used to it. It's got a big, fat, wide body, and it's a little out of balance that way. And um, it's got that finished neck on it, which I've never been really prone to. But... It sounds really good and it plays really good, so I'm I'm pretty happy with it. it, it it'll find a spot in my rotation for sure. You nice. know, I'm doing so many different things, so many different types of music now that it's nice to have uh, something that doesn't look 80s like most of my Charvels do. And uh, yeah, well, the thing about the PRS is, is that they're sort of in between, like they're in between a traditional and a race car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they sound great. They play great. They look a little more traditional, so they have that familiar body shape, and I think that's why they made were made so popular. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, honestly, it just I, I haven't had to touch it. I haven't had to set it up in any way, shape, or form. So um, it came out of the the box, just screaming and ready to go. So um, I'm I'm really I'm really pretty happy with it. it it'll probably fit more in some of the, the the classic rock stuff I do where I don't want to you know the the image of that particular band to be 280s so right um, you know I'm pretty happy with it but I'm sitting here with you know what one two three seven seven solid electrics that I can pick up and play at any time and they're all amazing so you know I, I never thought I would have that many guitars again I never thought I'd own more than one Right, you know, but they all kind of fit a different thing. Um, the big surprise for me is actually my Charbel Telly. That thing, uh, um, I, once I once I um, set it up and put nines on it, um, it just screamed, and it's so easy to play. It's got active electronics. It's got those Fishmans in it. Oh, yeah. uh, Fishman's Fluence, I guess it is. Yeah, um, yeah. Which sound real, real nice and tight. Um, it's, it, it doesn't have a, a, a floating bridge or whammy of any kind on it, obviously, which I love. Because I didn't really... All of my guitars had some kind of uh, whammy on it. And those can be a little harder to Finicky. keep in tune. When, yeah, when you're, you know, when you're playing outside or changing temperatures or whatever. So this, um, I bought this for my Phil Collins tribute. Um, so that I could tune it to have one guitar tuned a whole step down for some of the songs that we do and uh, once I got past that initial gig 
I really sat down with it and started working on it and playing with it, and it just uh, immediately loved it once I tuned it to pitch and put the nines on it. And, um, yeah, it just sounds and plays amazing. So, but my main my main guitar is my uh, my dark blue Charvel uh, DK22 with uh, three single coils in it. Um, cool. It's probably I, I can't say I've got to spend more time with my PRS, but it's probably the most versatile of the ones that I own, and it's got the right. shorter scale neck, which fits me a little better. Um, what is that? Uh, Twenty-four and three-quarter? Is that the Gibson scale or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and it's less tension too, so it's a little easier to like do everything on it, right? Like, yeah, and it, it 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 just. I mean, it's a little brighter than the rest of my Charvels, but it you know, if you know how to manage your tone, then uh, you'll be okay. So yeah. Um, yeah, so I've been incredibly happy with my Charvels. They they all play great. Um, they sound great. Um, you can't find you know an easier playing guitar in that price range. So yeah, right. Well, um, I want to kind of go back to when we were in school for a minute because you mm-hmm. you had said something about like you felt like you were inferior and you know I felt a lot of that, a lot of like that too, but knowing you and 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 uh how we met and all that i always i always considered you one of the better players in the school you know what i mean like <laughs> i wish like somebody would have told you that <laughs> there was like what there was well i would have never told you this because that's you know we're young and you know what i mean like right. <laughs> but uh there was what probably five or ten of us or something like that that kind of all sort of gravitated around each other and sort of learned off each other when we weren't in school you know right like like, um and so i just i just always considered you more of a i mean a really good shredder type player you know what i mean like um and obviously i know you probably wouldn't have considered yourself like that but i'm just saying from my perspective like from from where i stood i i thought about that and i still don't consider myself that right exactly you know i mean i feel the same way but uh now, also, there was um, certain teachers that we kind of, all of us kind of gravitated toward. Like, I really liked uh, Steve Morgan and Kevin Daly. And um, I remember, was the guy's name Dwayne or, or? Todd Dwayne? Yeah, Todd Dwayne, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I remember seeing, you know, like, he kind of took you under his wing a little bit, didn't he? And, and sort of. He did. Give you the master class on the three notes per string. and, and he. And, he- Todd, Todd was the reason I was going to do my second year, although Steve Morgan was my favorite teacher. Um, and I liked Cliff Whitstrick a lot. I mean, I kind of identified more with Cliff because he, uh, the way he talked about his coming up was more like how I felt. Like, he didn't have all the natural talent, right? He had to study, 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 study to get to where he was, and it was all about practice and learning, and eventually, you know, your ears and your knowledge kind of take over and all that kind of stuff. But, um... Todd, um, Todd and I did some stuff for quite a while after we graduated, and um, Todd was a um, another musical savant. That boy could play anything and uh, make it sound good, and he just had uh, amazing ears. Um, and um, you know, it was it was I don't know. He's He's a little bit opposite of what of what we see now in a shredder. Todd was a very hard picker, um, and he still somehow was able to do that and shred as fast as anybody else. I don't know. I still don't know how he did it. 
but yeah I started teching for him and his band at the time and um, and the word got around and and you know that that is what people started going oh wait a minute that's that funk player he you know and um, that's when they came into guitar center I was working at guitar center and, and mint condition came in and asked if I'd be interested in going on the road because they had heard about me um, but Todd was also very difficult to work with so it was kind of a it was kind of a um, a weird situation I mean he was smart he was brilliant uh, could play you know like nobody's business um, but also had a little bit of an ego and, and whatever so uh, I think it limited some of his opportunities to be honest with you but I learned so much from him um, and especially when it came to playing live and tone and you know he's the one that got me using certain types of picks and then figuring out that I didn't need to turn my gain up past six on my amplifier to play rock and roll and right you know stuff like that and um, he was great for that kind of thing but it was Steve Morgan that made it all click Steve Morgan's teaching of theory was the one the, that the thing that helped me more than anything else I got out of that school yeah, dude. The the thing about Steve's teaching was incredible because, like, it's like this crazy, like, um, he would not bullshit you at all. Like, he would mm -mm. tell you the truth. And I just love that about somebody who's like, you know, because they really want you to get better. And they see something in you that you don't see in yourself necessarily. Right. And, uh, you know, that no no BS attitude, I really, really benefited but he also a lot did from it. He also did it in a way that was affable, so it, it didn't yeah. make you feel like shit, right? So, right, right. you know, it's, yeah, he, it's very. Yeah, he was funny. He had a sense of humor. He could relate things and things and stories, and he was able to break things down in a way that it, it didn't make it confusing. And, and the light, you know, I think I was there two weeks, and um, the, you know that light bulb just kind of clicked, and then all of a sudden the theory made sense like nothing else. And and of course I was that guy that w while we were there when we weren't practicing or hanging out or whatever, I was at home and I was writing everything out on, on fretboard paper, right? I wrote out all, yeah, and I color coded everything and I did all that stuff. So by the time I got through that and all the keys, it felt like I already, I kind of had memorized my neck without actually playing the guitar. Um, and then it was just a matter of, you know, learning to play over the changes, which is again, where I failed to, to put most of my time and I should have. Absolutely, and they need you to break it down you know, like, uh, same thing with me. Like, um, uh, I had taken theory and private lessons before and I just, it never clicked. And I always kind of felt like maybe I'm just kind of dumb. You know what I mean? Like maybe I just right. don't get it. So I did the same thing every single day. I wrote everything out. I broke it all down to the triad, to the very, the very last note that I could find and try to, you know, sort of understand all that stuff. And so, cause I said to myself, you know what? Maybe I have to spend extra time on it. Maybe some people get it a lot faster than I do, but I'm just going to have to spend the extra time on it and try to learn it that way, you know. Right. And then uh, the way horn players think about notes instead of scales, I always try to do that too, you know what I mean? It, amazing, because I just did a sax solo last night. I did the sax solo from Rio by Duran Duran, and I posted a video of it last night. And, you know, while I'm doing it, and it, it's been in my head all night and all day, thinking about the, the way that they phrase that and, and, and how, you know, how, how I could apply that to my playing versus your typical stuff. And there's, um, there's a real 
merit, a real value in learning how different types of horn players phrase versus how guitar players phrase. Absolutely. If you're play, if you're copying guitar players, we're all playing the same licks for the most part, and it, it gets a little old. This is why this is why I struggled with blues for so long because I could tell what was going to happen before it happened. I knew what was coming. And it was only blues players that kind of stepped out like Robin Ford, or, you know, or somebody like that that would throw some jazz infusion into their blues that it become interesting to me. Now, as I've gotten older, I've been able to, to go back and appreciate things a lot more for the simplicity of it and a lot kind of stuff. But for a while, I really kind of struggled because it was so simplistic that, you know, it, it didn't capture my ear or my attention. There was no surprises coming around the corner. Yeah, I mean, I mean, from a linear standpoint, for sure. From a you yeah. know, like a logical standpoint, absolutely. Right. But and that's thing, how I viewed everything. That yeah. was how I viewed everything. So, right. Right. You know, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't listening for phrasing and emotional content and all these other things that come along with you know being a musician. And so, you know, picking out some horn parts and doing some other things and learning how to to cop that feel and all that. That's that's I think. It should be a part of every guitar player's, you know, practice and, and methodology, as opposed to just, you know, playing guitar like a guitar player would play it. Right? You, you need to learn to develop your own voice, and um, it's hard to do when you're just copying everybody else's licks. You know that that we've heard a million times over and over and over. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, I agree. The the any you know the great thing about playing guitar is that it's. I feel like it's. And I think I've heard it said to you before that it's like one of the closest instruments to the human voice. So yeah. you, can, you can copy piano players, you can copy horn players, you can, you know what I mean? Like you can get this right. phrasing that these different instruments give you because the way they're laid out differently than on a guitar. So, well, I mean, practice, you know, playing, um, you know, vocals on your guitar. Yep. You know, go find somebody like Luther Vandross and copy his phrasing and learn, you know, learn to do that versus. Absolutely. You know, versus your favorite guitar, you know, player. So, yeah, I think the, you know, those are, and it forces you to use your ears more because you can't rely on a lick that you know is coming up. You actually have to listen to the 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 line that they're playing. So you don't know what the lick of that horn player is, right? It's not a typical rock pentatonic lick or whatever necessarily, or phrase the same way. When you when you, it just forces you to open your ears a little bit more. And make sure you're getting that note that note choice right, or you know the, how they slide up to their notes, or whatever the case is going to be. And they don't tend to think of playing notes in succession like seconds and thirds. You know, right. they, you know, their interval distance a lot of times is much greater. So it's, um, it, I think it's pretty integral in becoming a, a much more well-rounded musician. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. You know, so, and then, then, then you know, throw on top of that any any spiritual practice you get out of it, right? I mean, if it's something that really connects with you on an emotional level or whatever, then that's just bonus. So, yeah. So, like, the reason why I I love the blues, and and even though when I was in school, you know, I could have I could have just not really worried about that just because of um, you know what I what I love to play. But the reason why is because you know when I played it, I just the feeling I got from playing it. You know what I mean? Right. It was like it was like right. this, it, just being able to play one note and have this feeling of like this raw guttural, like emotional release. You know what I mean? Right. So and it's not technical or in, in any sort of way, but like if you think about the jazz guys and how close blues and jazz, you know, the they they both 
have a love for each other sort of a thing you know and like you said robin ford and different guys like that that um took the harmonic uh complexities of like jazz and applied it to a more simple bluesier type of stuff then all of a sudden this whole world just sort of opened up it's like oh wow you know right and and it doesn't need for me even it didn't need to be a lot of complex stuff it just needed to be something that would shock your ear for a second sure and you know and and um, but if it hadn't been for those players, I'd never probably would have ever gone back to listen to, you know, more traditional blues playing again because I just would have been like, a, you know, music for simpletons. That would have been my attitude back in the day. And, um, you know, it, it took a while for me to kind of get past that elitism type of, of thinking and, and realizing, you know, what the connection is there for so many people and why it's so uh why it's so important and you know i i'm i'm the guitar player that didn't learn how to play pentatonic scales until last right right? i didn't grow up playing pentatonic scales i grew up playing you know shred licks so i was a horrible pentatonic player i was a horrible blues player and um you know after i started realizing um you know what people connect with and 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 how to get out of my own head and stop thinking like, you know, some overstuffed, you know, professor of, of musicology, you know, jackass that, you know, that, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, it, it really does boil down to keep it simple, stupid for most people and, and how they can connect to things. And, you know, I'm to the point now where I listen to today's new music and I'm like, oh my God, that's just nothing but a bunch of notes that nobody can hear because it's too fast. Yeah. And while, yeah. Uh, while I can while I can admire the technique and I can even be wild and odd by it, I would never want to learn to play like that, right? I, I'm I'm somewhere in the middle. I want to I want to be able to copy, you know, uh, Eric Clapton, and at the same time, I want to be able to do a little bit of John Pertucci if I need to. And, um, you know, kind of walk that fine line of, of, of all the worlds of, of guitar so that if I get called upon to be able to do something, I can do it, but it shouldn't be my only bag of tricks, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. And like, right. like you said, you're, you're also providing the listener an experience, you know, like, right. like even though like some of the easiest songs in the world, bar band songs you play, you know what I mean? Like we've all played them a million, a million of them, you know, Sweet Home Alabama or, uh, you know, whatever it is. It's just all these. But when somebody comes up to you or and says, you know, hey, man, thank you for that memory. That really brought back something for me. You start to right. think, oh, that's what it's about. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I get it. it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not about me being a some kind of cool player that can play this really cool leak inside this chord change other than the person that you're playing for had a memory that they really, really loved, you know? Right, right. And and it, I can't remember who it was or what it was. You know, a while back I'd come across these lessons about how to play a solo with one note or no more than four notes and how to make it interesting and not and when you think about it it's much harder to play simply than it is to play technically absolutely if i'm not stuffing it with shit you know right right i mean i can fly up and down the fretboard all night long and make it look like i've got all these you know cool things going on but i'm not really saying anything and and it's just easy to let muscle memory do the work but when you got to stop and create something out of nothing or very little and make it memorable and make it, you know, uh, have some kind of melodic content and emotional content and, you know, whatever, that becomes a much harder task than for me to shred, you know, a bunch of triads and sweep arpeggios up and down the neck. So, 
um, that was the challenge. And once I started trying to do that, that's when I started realizing, you know, I've had this whole thing asked backwards. So, right. you know, it's fun to be able to play at a certain speed and, and look impressive. It, it, it wows the guitar center crowd, but it doesn't wow the audience into buying tickets to your show. Yeah, you're and, right. And, you know, you know, I mean, you can just look at any any uh, shred band and you'll see for the most part you know they don't they don't sell a lot of tickets and at least you know they don't have very long careers there's very few people who shred shred really well that that can sell shows you know steve i joe satriani andy timmons or whatever but for the most part you know people get tired of that pretty quick and and your audience dwindles pretty fast so you know the the bands that are out there still doing it still making a great living they're not the most technically gifted players or if they are you would never know it because they play within the context of the song sure absolutely and that's the important thing is you play it for the song right and, and and that's that was the hardest lesson for me now i read it a million times in all the interviews you know back in the day listening to the studio musicians and whatever and, but when you when you sit down and you're playing your guitar and you're practicing once you know what you're doing you kind of start thinking oh my god that's too simple i gotta do something better i gotta do something more creative i gotta do something that sounds more complex and you get into your head and nothing's ever good enough and you're you're looking at it from the wrong angle because you know that everybody else sitting around you in that school is going oh i can do that i know what he's right. doing you know and so you get in your own head and you start learning losing the 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 reason why you're writing songs or playing songs and it, it becomes more like oh i've got to impress everybody and that's not that's not how people relate to music that might be how a guitar play you know that might be how another guitar player looks at you when you're sitting down next to them and playing but in general they're probably just as um impaired by their own beliefs about their playing as you are and you know um, the idea should be more about creating something that uh, creates a response an emotional response than something that creates you know the 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 off factor that will get old after you know 15 minutes of listening to you shred up and down the neck because it does get old right yeah. it does this is so important for the the youngsters to to listen to and to realize too you know what i mean like mm -hmm. like um because if they can get a better jump on it than what we had then then they're going to be one one step ahead of the game you know Right. And, and, and the other thing is for people to realize, like, no matter how simple it is, once you're up on stage and playing live and you have all these things coming at you, nothing's ever simple. The other thing is the magic that's happening on stage. Like, you're communicating with other band members without talking, and there's an energetic thing that's happening that's so hard to explain, but other than, you know, it just feels special, you know? Yeah, it, definitely, and it, and you know the the goal of as being a guitar player at that point should be about consistency. You know, can you play that part over and over and over without messing it up, and and you know be able to put on the show that these people paid to see while not losing any of the 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 musicality of it or the emotional the content of it. So, um, you know, I, I am a big fan of watching somebody go out and give it the role and get into it and play something, even if they make mistakes. I'd rather see that than see somebody who stands up there shredding note for note perfect stuff but puts on nothing of a show and it doesn't look like, you know, they're into it because they're so busy trying not to make a mistake. Yeah, and plus, like, um, if you're doing the same exact thing over and over again and, you know, you're just sort of 
regurgitating your practice stuff. You know what I mean? Like, and and that's what I feel like I'm doing most of the time, right? So when I when I sit down and I'm just shredding by myself and I'm playing a guitar and just noodling back and forth, I can see where all my you know my all my licks kind of end up being the same, sounding the same, and um, because the muscle memory is there and it's just easy, it's. And we tend to practice the stuff we're good at and not practice the stuff we're not good at. And you really have to sit down and focus on things that you don't know how to do, no matter how simple they are, and force yourself to learn to play, you know, something all over the neck. Like one of the the most amazing things about Stevie Ray Vaughan was he could take the same lick and play it anywhere on the guitar, and it always sounded perfect. He always sounded the same no matter where he played it. Well, most guitar players can't do that. Right? Most guitar players don't play outside of that one pentatonic box because they don't know anything else. Right. Well, you know, if you if you really want to be fluent on your guitar, you have to be able to play, you know, your favorite licks all over the neck, and then, um, you know, to be able to be opening up different um, possibilities for some, you know, uh, uh, context and construction. Um, when you when you sit in one spot all the time and all of your solos or 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 lead lines are born out of one spot you you can get pretty stale so we always have to yeah we have to be challenging ourselves and again you know that's why you listen to horn players and other things but you know also working on on um ideas that uh push you out of your comfort zone the the there was a book back in the day that i used to read all the time called the advancing guitarist by mick goodrick um and that thing was a brilliant book on how to play not like a guitar player right and that's what you want to do to stand out you really really right you need to listen to other things besides guitar players it's it's a must you know yeah yeah i mean cop everything you can but guitar players for a while and um, I mean, that doesn't mean you can't. I mean, you know, I certainly, uh, I, I spend a lot of time studying Steve Lukather because he's one of my favorite players because he just has such a command over his instrument. He has a, he has a little bit of everything too. He's, he's soulful technique, um, great sound. Like he's pretty much like the whole package. Yeah. He's, he, and, and, you know, he can sing, he can, he can do it all. You know, um, and so it, it's it's a great study in how to play and when to play and when not to play. Um, yeah. You know, uh, he's one of those guys who can take those four notes and make the most amazing music with it. So, you know, I do spend a lot of time studying certain players because there is so much to glean out of them. And Steve doesn't necessarily always play like a guitar player either. He does play a lot of horn-like parts. So... There is that, but in general, like you know, not that long ago, I learned a keyboard solo for a, a Jane Child song. I don't want to fall in love. I think it was that was popular like back in the oh, late okay. '80s or whatever. Yeah. But it was just you know, it's it's a challenge to try and hear something and and you know, uh, a, a section of notes that is not phrased in a way that you would normally hear it phrased because it's not played on the guitar. And then you got to sit down and figure that out and how they did it. And, um, you know, that, that really does challenge your ear and it forces you to look at certain things, you know, differently and how you can phrase how you play chords or how you play triads or how you, you know, uh, use intervals to create some kind of tension or space or whatever. So, 
you know, we as guitar players tend to play very linearly, and we tend to do a lot of seconds and thirds in our playing, and not a lot of, of uh, uh, space in between our notes. And that that gets pretty old and pretty stale really quick. And whenever I see people shred, I would say about 80% of the time, those people are just playing scales really fast that once you know how to do it, it's really not all that hard. But being able to play something melodic really fast, something that isn't just a scale, that's a whole different world. And that is that can become, becomes incredibly hard. So I don't necessarily get impressed by people who can play fast, you know? Um, there's a, a website out there that has a bunch of these new guitar players that are playing kind of these modern fusiony lines and rock uh -huh. and whatever, and they and they have found a way to play guitar with a lot of technique and a lot of soul and a lot of feel and um, really interesting lines. It's JTCGuitar.com or something like that, and that stuff I find pretty interesting. There's a kid out there from Russia. He's like 17 years old, named Max Osro, that is just a brilliant little player and everything he plays is interesting and there's all kinds of nuance and, and feel and technique and all that stuff rolled into one. That stuff I, I, I still dig, but just in general, the idea of shred, um, yeah, not so much, right? I mean, right. speed can be used like the classical musicians used it to get from point A to point B because you're setting something up. It should be used yeah. to build tension or something, but it, yeah. sh it shouldn't be the whole solo all the way through unless that's, you know, really the point of that solo. I mean, it's not like you can't just go off and have a solo that's nothing but fire, but that gets old. I mean, you, you know, you got to learn how, you got to learn how to phrase and and how to build things up and, and let things go. So, you know, yeah, my, my views have definitely changed as I've got older and I I quit I quit worrying about impressing other players and worried more about what I was putting out or even what I was taking in as a musician. What right. am I getting out of this? Am I just getting more finger exercises or am I getting something that says something, you know? What yeah. am I what am I what am I feeding myself as a musician to learn from? And you can only read so many technique books. So, you know, I well, would say, you know, as a guitar player, find, you know, your your couple guitar players that you love that say something very interesting and, and you learn from them as much as you can, but then, you know, like like we were discussing earlier, find the horn players, find the vocalists, find, yeah. the, you know, violin players and study that too. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, what, I gotta ask about this too, like the, um, I didn't realize you grew up in Alaska, but mm -hmm. at the time period when we grew up, there was no internet. There was no none of this stuff, right? And like, yeah. I grew up in Southern Michigan, which is not Alaska. <laughs> you know what no. I mean? Like, well, you might have just as much snow. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, going to the store and getting the guitar magazines was like a huge highlight, man. And and oh, learning the huge. tab and that wait. was yeah. that was like our internet. You know, do you want to talk a little bit about you know what? How is it? How was it finding the magazines for you of being up in Alaska and all that? You know. We had we had a music store back when we were kids. You know, you could actually leave the house without somebody calling the cops for parental abuse because your kid was outside. <laughs> right. um, so me, I had a friend, and I don't remember which friend it was, but we would always go to this music store that was probably about a mile away from my house, and we'd walk down there, ride our bikes down there all the time, and I'd sit in there all day long and just annoy the hell out of the people that worked there because, you know, here I am, you know, a twelve-year-old kid hanging out and trying every guitar on the planet making noise and I had no idea what I was doing but 
you know, every month you went down there waiting for that next issue of Guitar for the Practicing Musician. You couldn't wait to see what was coming in and getting that thing. And you would buy that magazine or Guitar World or Guitar Player or whatever, and you would bring it home and you would just obsess over that thing until the next issue came out. And certain issues, you, you know, there's still certain issues that I have that, you know, I, I open up and reread or whatever because it just brings back that nostalgia and that feeling of excitement of learning something new. But it, that was, we did, you know, we, that was the only access we had to our musicians back then. We didn't have all these other things. You had, you know, you had Circus Magazine or uh, uh, I can't remember what they were all called, but you had certain, you know, magazines for, for the, the fans that would read articles about the band and what they were doing and blah, 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 blah. And then you had, you know, the guitar magazines as the guitar players that you would buy. And there was really only three of them. Um, and so you would buy those and you would live off of those and, and that was your uh, intake of guitar for you know the whole month and there was nothing else and so they were the biggest things on the planet. So every month you would get a magazine with three or four songs in it that you would learn how to play and you know some technique tips and tone tips and whatever in there and you just you absorbed every every inch of that. I mean you read every article because there was nothing else out. And yep. you you would learn a ton because of that because you're reading articles on how to play in the studio, what it takes to be a professional musician, how to play live, you know all these things that today you, you just everybody has music at their fingertips and so they practice but they don't learn anything, you know like the other day I posted a, a video from a guy out there talked about how using too much distortion is not a good thing right and right. these are things that we learned a long time ago but. Um, most guitar players, uh, you know, that are local and have it done professionally. And I'm sorry if you're in a band and you play in a bar every now and then. That's not you're not a professional musician, right? Especially if you haven't learned these things. But you know, you would learn why you don't use so much distortion, right? And what what the 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 effects of that is. And you can go out to just about any club these days and listen to bands, and everybody's got so much gain and so much bass in their tone and so much whatever. You can't even make out what they're playing. Yeah, you can hear and, it a mile away, like a mile right. away. You you can tell that guy's yeah, he's got right. And and they're they're stepping all over each other, and you walk out of there just because you're like, oh, that was such a great song. But I, you know, or if they play an original, and especially with heavy metal stuff, heavy heavy metal stuff, where they're dropping right. down to C sharp or whatever, you, you, your stuff because such mud. There's no definition. You can't tell what note choice you're making. You can't tell what the chords are. You can't hear anything but. <laughs> because you're all in the same frequency ranges. Yeah. And it just yeah. sounds like hell. So, you know, back then you had all the stuff at your fingertips uh, in, in very small amounts, but because there was not all this other flood of information and you didn't have a million places to go learn songs, there was a bunch of videos, you, you, you know, you would absorb all this and you would learn it. And so you would come up a little smarter as you were going through this process. You know, and then you would get videos, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I had uh, Night Rangers uh, live in 87 or whatever it was. I can't remember what year it was, but it was their Seven Wishes tour and it was a live concert. And I would just watch that thing over and over and over and over and just trying to figure out how did they play that part or how, to, you know, how are they getting this particular sound and where are they standing for feedback and, you know, how much, everything, that, how much energy they're putting out there, you know, and how, how to put on a show like that with all that energy without falling over dead. So, you know, you because you were so limited to things back then, all those resources meant a lot more. Today, we just plow through information like it's nothing. And 
we'll have a favorite resource for you know a week or two and then we find some other resource and we forget the other one where we just learned so much stuff and we go off to this other resource and in some ways that could be good but not if not if at the point that you're not learning and absorbing all these things that you're taking in like if you if you go you know take a lesson and you kind of get the idea but you don't get it under your fingers so well that you can play it in any key at any time then you didn't really get the lesson you're right so for sure you know so from that standpoint having all this information doesn't help us but you know it also makes it much more accessible for people to learn how to play an instrument and enjoy it and have a good time with it whether you know we think they're professional or not or if they're any good or not or or maybe there's maybe they're incredibly brilliant and they just don't want to be out in the limelight you know um the day the rock star is gone and and the day of the the you know the youtuber is upon us right and and the problem with that is and this is one of the reasons that i still put videos with mistakes up because people need to know it's okay to make mistakes when you're a youtuber all you're doing is trying to find the perfect take and that's what you're showing up there and that can that can really frustrate other people because they feel like they can't ever play like that plus like keeping it simple enough to like uh uh, not have a big production, you know, like right. sitting on a couch playing your acoustic guitar. You know what I mean? Something right. very simple like right. that. Like it's very right. important. Right. When I first started doing these guitar videos a couple of years back, I started. I had three cameras up. I was had three different ways I was recording the audio, and I'd go back and I'd edit all this, and it'd take me the full day. And I'm like, Jesus Christ! I could have made 16 videos of other songs if I just used my, you know, my phone. Right. That's what I do now. I don't spend all that time editing and doing all that, mainly because, number one, I got other things I want to do with my life, and I have more fun doing those things than I do sitting in front of my laptop, you know. Hell yeah. Right? So now I just throw my phone up. I don't care how good the quality is of the audio, and I play whatever I play, and I give myself one or two takes, and that's what goes out there, mistakes or not. And and it, it it's enough for people to know that I can play guitar, right? And at the rate that I'm throwing things up there, you know, um, people know that I can figure things out quickly because I don't post anything that I know how to play. Right. I only post I only post up something I learned that day. Within I, I give myself about a 20 minute window, whether it's the solo of the song. If it's the solo of the song, I might give myself 30 minutes. So, you know, I try to do that and get it as close as I can in that amount of time, and and then take a video of it in one or two takes. Every, every now and then I have a major flub and I do have to re-record it. I don't leave major, major flubs in there. But if I hit a bad note or if I, you know, the note doesn't sustain as long or whatever, I don't edit that crap out and I don't I don't redo it. It just goes up there because you're going to do that live. You're going to have mistakes live. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, and people need to know that that's okay. And, um, you know, I see some of these other, these YouTuber accounts and they'll get on there and they'll admit that they play it take after take after take until they get it perfect. And but that makes these people like they're musical geniuses, and they're not. They're not savants. They're not anybody special. They're the average musician who's up there playing that take seventy times until they get it right, and they find a take that they can use. But here's and, the thing. Here's the thing that they that they are really really missing out on. That me and you, I think, will have a much better handle on is the fact that uh, um, when they go to play live, they'll just fall apart. I've seen yeah. it happen. I've seen it happen where these people get like millions of views on YouTube, but they go try to play something live, and it is a mess. Horrid. You know, it's yeah, terrible. It's, it's, it's like, a whole dude. different world. It's a whole different world getting up Absolutely, on that stage. Absolutely, man. You know, the other night we did a gig, and um, this was one a warm up band, a warm up show for one of my uh, newer bands, and we get there and there's no monitors, uh, there's no lights. Um, 
we had a fill-in drummer at the last minute. Um, the other band that played with us also had a fill-in drummer at the last minute. Um, you know, it, it, that kind of situation. And you still have to get up there and make it happen, no matter how bad the situation is, right? I couldn't hear yep. anything but me that night and the, and the drummer. And I couldn't hear the vocalist because there was no monitors. I couldn't hear the keyboards, right. you know, any of that stuff. And so you get up there and you do, and if you don't know your stuff cold, you know, um, you're screwed. And that's the goal. When you when you do a band and you're getting out to perform live, it shouldn't. It's nice to have monitors. It's nice to have, you know, great tone. It's nice to have all these things. But the reality is, is if you don't know your songs cold to the, the to the point where you don't need any of that, then you don't know your song well enough. And well, you're gonna make you're gonna you're gonna make a lot of mistakes, right? And then that's yeah. just gonna right. And trust me, I made a couple mistakes because there was a couple new songs we threw in that night, but. In general, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't have to rely on all this other stuff to to, to not make mistakes. You should be able to play your instrument uh, and get through a song and know it well enough whether you can hear everybody else or not. Yeah, Period. and the other thing too is like, um, uh, I guess there's this perception of like all these gigs are like super cool and super like uh, you got a sound guy and you got this and you got that. Let me tell you, after 20 years of playing out and about, there are places that, you know, they'll put you on a flatbed trailer in the middle of the field with three generators running for electricity, oh, you know, yeah. and like, yeah. and like, you're like making sure, did I get my tetanus shot? You know what I mean? Right. Just make- uh, that, that gig Friday night, that bar didn't even have a PA. So right. the, the, the headliner band brought their PA and there's some kind of miscommunication between our band and their band about whether or not we needed monitors. They all run in-ears and we don't all run in-ears. So they didn't know we needed monitors and they didn't bring them. And so, you know, those you know those things happen, right? Like I would never book my bar in a band, my band in a bar that didn't have a PA, right? Yeah. Especially when they're not paying all that much money. I'm not gonna go through all that to, uh, to uh, put my people through all that and whatever and have to take an extra three hours out of my day to go, you know, pick up a PA, take it there, set it up, blah, 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 blah. By the time you get to your show, you're tired, you wore out, and then you're frustrated as hell. Right. So, um, but, you know, uh, they were bringing their PA and they were going to set it all up and whatever. And I thought, okay, this will be fine. We'll get, you know, this won't be that bad. We weren't expecting any kind of, um, great gig because we know it's a dive bar. We know, you know, what to expect. And, and you know, like I said, it was it was there to kind of get us through our set and see where we need to work on some things and and get us you know all gelled together and whatever. And in spite of you know all that, we still did a you know a pretty good show. A lot of, a lot of people love it. We're still getting all kinds of compliments on it or whatever because you know we put the time in to uh, put on the best show possible. Um, but a lot of bands I see, they just don't do that. And I see a lot of bands that get up there and they call themselves, you know, tribute band or they call themselves whatever. And they don't know the parts. They don't even come close to some of the parts. They don't, yeah. they don't dial in tone that are appropriate for those, you know, those songs or bands or whatever. And, and they just don't put in the time. So over the years, um, you know, I mean, obviously, like, we both have got, like, a ton of playing live experience uh, with the cover bands and stuff like that. Um, I didn't do a whole lot of, like, writing and recording, but I'm sort of getting into that aspect a little bit now more so, too. Um, did you do much writing and recording over the years, or is it something that you feel like you are going to start to do, or or is it any kind of any kind of priority in writing anything? 
I've I have vacillated back and forth over the decades with that. I do I have written I've got some uh, producer credits even. Um, uh, you know, I, my problem is when you start writing music with people and shit hits the fan, and then it becomes just a nightmare of who gets songwriting credit and blah 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 blah, and that ruined it all for me so I don't tend to write as much with other people um, I'm probably doing a little bit more with that now just because more because I enjoy playing over changes and writing parts and coming up with cool stuff I have preferred being more of the hired gun because my responsibility ends at that you know show up play your guitar play it right and go home yeah uh, 100% the um is there a uh... Any place, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, like, um, do you want to kind of say, like, what, what kind of services you offer and, like, if you have a website or anything like that in case somebody wants to get a hold of you for any reason? Well, I mean, I have my LowryAgency.com um, where people can get a hold of me through that. Um, don't get a hold of me to book your bands, please, because I'm not doing that. That That is purely for projects I'm involved in. I'm not looking to do this full time. But, you know, if you're looking for somebody, you need a guitar player or you need um, advice on how to, to make things happen for your music career, you can certainly contact me through there. Um, I do uh, uh, speaking engagements. I do classes, um, one-on-one consultations, all those things. And, you know, you can find out more about that on thelowerangency.com. Um, obviously, I have social media. The, the three I'm most active with is Facebook, uh, Instagram, and TikTok. And those are all just Lowry Agency, so you can look those up there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, collaborating and, and, um, and seeing, you know, what, what comes out of, you know, things. And I, I like challenges. I like uh, having things thrown to me that I'm not necessarily well versed in so you know if anybody's got something odd that they want to try sure sh shoot me an email and let's see what what we can do is there um, anything coming up in the future that you uh, want to talk about or are you, you kind of just uh, playing everything by ear at this point right now yeah I mean the, uh, the season has ended right it's Christmas season so there's nothing on the on the uh, books right now so, uh, yeah, we got to get you back, dude. Like, uh, this is just too much fun. Um, <laughs> hey, man, thanks for coming and check and uh, hanging out with me today, Dave. I, uh, sure. I, we go way back, man, and it's so great to talk to you. I know we don't get to talk as much as we probably should, but, you know, it's still, I relish the times when uh, we do get to get together and get to hang. Me too, brother. Thank you so much. <laughs>